Let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Welcome back, everyone, to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. If you missed our opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band, and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. And it features Maya Dora, who just has an excellent voice. It's really uplifting music, and I, I find it a good way to start out my day. So feel free to, to check that out. For those of you that are new to Alzheimer Speaks Radio, we're about sound information, not just sound bites. We want to hear the whole story of what's going on out there. And our goal is to raise voices big and small. So that means those that are diagnosed, those that care and serve for them, advocates, researchers, and so much more. We have had singers and songwriters and movie directors and authors, and the list goes on and on to children who are getting out there and making a difference themselves. I also want to say thank you to our listeners. Because of you and your loyalty, you have spread basically our brand footprint all around the world. And because of your likes, your clicks, and shares, that I know you don't think mean much, they do. They are spreading the word and making it just easier for people to grab the information when they're ready. Because we all have people in our spheres that are dealing with this. And many of them have never said a word to us. And they might be in our family, they might be our closest friends or neighbors. It doesn't make any difference, but we have to shift our dementia care culture so people feel comfortable. They feel like there's a sense of community and collaboration when they reach out. And to me, that's how we're going to win this battle against dementia. So I encourage you to continue uh, clicking, liking, and sharing um, as far as wide as possible because you are making a big difference in a lot of people's lives. Now today we are going to learn about Harry's Haven and the Motion Picture Television Fund. You see, dementia doesn't care who you are. <laughs> they don't care where you live. They don't care how much money you make or what you do. Uh, we are all dealing with this. But before I introduce you to our guests, I have to give a shout out first to the Memory Cafe directory. Uh, these are lifesavers. Um, these groups, I don't even like to call them a support group because I think there's stigma that goes along with them. But they are for people with dementia and their care partners to give them a center base, give them, give them that peer interaction. I say they're kind of like a bowling league or a bridge club. You don't show up for the, for the equipment. You show up to have fun and be engaged and feel part of something bigger. And that's exactly what these do. So you can go to memorycafedirectory.com and find one uh, near you. And if you have one, uh, the, the listings are free. So again, go there and register. Reach out to Dave. He'd be more than glad 
to, um, to list you in the directory. I also want to uh, remind people, we don't just do the radio show. We do a thing called Dementia Chats, where I facilitate a conversation with people living with dementia. And they tell us what they want in the world, how they want to be communicated with, what kind of services they have, what worries them. Um, how can you ease the burden on their care partners and their families um, and so much more and those videos are all on our YouTube channel along with something I just started this year called dementia quick tips which are things I wish somebody would have told me when I was on the journey with my own mom who lived with dementia for 30 years now one of um, one of our great partners out there is Coral Health, and they are offering during this time of COVID uh, free apps for their Music First and Coral Faith. So just go to Coral Health um, and, and you go ahead and Google them. You'll find that right on top. You can go ahead and download those apps. And it's just nice to have music um, and maybe some faith-based um, information as well. Uh, on your phone, um, just to bring some calm, bring some joy. And then last, I want to give a shout out to the GAIN Alzheimer's trial. People are always looking at ways that they can um, participate and improve, you know, what is going on. And the GAIN's Alzheimer's trial is targeted to people 55 to 80 years old who are diagnosed with mild um, to moderate Alzheimer's disease. And they have to have a care partner or family member that's willing to attend uh, study visits and help with daily activities and um, prescriptions just to make sure that things are documented. And I lied. It wasn't my last thing. I forgot. This Thursday, I am doing a caregiver survival camp for artists senior living in Yardley, Pennsylvania. Now, needless to say, I'm not flying there. So we're doing this virtual and anybody can attend. And you can register at 267-393-4454. That's 267-393-4454. Or you can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and you can contact them. Um, via their website as well. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. I'm really excited. We were going to get together earlier and then COVID kind of threw us for a loop, uh, which is kind of throwing everybody for a loop. So I want to um, first introduce Jessica Coy. And she is a licensed social worker, and she has worked with the Motion Picture and Television Fund uh, community clients and residents with dementia for the last 13 years. Um, Jessica is the Director of Campus and Community-Based Social Services. So welcome, Jessica. How are you doing today? I'm good, Lori. Thank you very much for having me. Great. And next, I want to introduce your sidekick. Uh, Linda Healy. She's a certified uh, gerontological and palliative care nurse practitioner, and she has um, worked with MPTF residents um, with dementia for the last 20 years. And she is the director of both geriatric services and palliative care. So welcome, Linda. Thank you, Lori. Well, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, Linda and I have, have chatted on the phone uh, multiple times trying to get this coordinated. And like I said, I'm so excited to have you both with us today. 
Um, I always like to start out by asking our guests if they've been personally touched by dementia. So Linda, I'm going to throw that one to you first, if you don't mind. Um, not within my own family, no. And, and not, I hadn't had much personal experience prior to starting um, working with dementia 20 years ago. But of course, over the years, as a person gets older, there's been family friends that have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and I've accompanied their families on their journey. Okay, wonderful. Jessica, how about you? Have you been personally touched in your circle of family or friends? <clears throat> well, like Linda, no one in my family has been um, diagnosed or had to um, had dementia. But also, like Linda, I've had friends um, who have had uh, family members or parents who've been diagnosed with dementia. So, kind of walked that journey with them um, as I've gotten. Uh, you know, into it through my professional career. Okay. Well, lucky, lucky you. Um, my, my mom uh, started in her mid fifties and lived till 86 with it. Wow. And the first, the first 10 years though, the doctors kept poo-pooing it to hormones and my mom would go, this ain't my girlfriend's hormones. <laughs> we're, we're talking, this is different, you know? And then by the time they truly tested her, they said she had the mentality of a three-year-old and don't let her out of your sight. So it was quite a struggle. There you know, wasn't much out there for support. And I know a lot of families feel the same way today, though there is a lot more out there um, than there was you know, 35 years ago. Um, but we still have a long ways to go. So um, Jessica, before we dive in, I want to kind of give our audience a big picture of you know, what the heck is the motion picture <laughs> television fund? What are you all about and, and what do you do? Yes. So we're actually about 100 years old, believe it or not. Uh, we were founded in 1921 by Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, and Mary Pickford. And the idea around uh, motion picture and television fund at the time was that people would actually donate their spare change um, in actual bucket on sets where they would collect the money and help industry members who uh, were in times of need. So this industry is very cyclical. Uh, some people work a lot for a period of time and then they work um, no jobs at all. And so very early on they saw, you know, we have to take care of people in our industry if this is going to be successful because to make movies and television, it takes all sorts of people and all sorts of jobs. And then flash forward about 20 more years, uh, Jean Herschel bought our campus out here in Woodland Hills, California. Uh, we're on 48 acres of land. Um, and I think the statistic was he bought it for $800 an acre, which is pretty incredible. Especially <laughs> for California. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, and here on our beautiful campus, we have a residential community, which can house about 160 residents in our assisted living facility. So that ranges from independent living to assisted living. And then we have um, Harry's Haven and our Mary Pickford house. Uh, Harry's Haven is our 40 bed uh, secure dementia facility. And then Mary Pickford is our 40 bed long-term care facility. And we also have a 12 bed um, Gero psych unit on our campus. And then we have a number of programs that take place off campus in our community, which I'll talk about a little later. Um, but that's kind of the background of, of motion picture. Our, our um, 
Our mission is we support our entertainment community in living and aging well with dignity and purpose and in helping each other in times of need. I love that. And I love the philosophy of just what our small change can do. Yeah. In terms of that big statement. And, you know, now there's a shortage of change because none of the banks, yeah. want, well, none <laughs> of the banks want to take it in, you know, yeah. so people are, people are hoarding it or else they have to pay to, to bring it in. And uh, it's just, um, yeah. So uh, what a cool idea though. I, I love that sense of community and uplifting and knowing that we are all more than just ourselves you know, and, and there's so much we can do together. I also um, am impressed that you guys have a Jerry Psych area mm -hmm. there, because that, I, I don't care where you go in the country, yeah. that is such a high level need, yeah. and it's just not out there for people. And, um, you know, hopefully that is something that gets corrected because, you know, families and, and health Healthcare professionals alike are really struggling with not getting proper diagnosis because there's no no place to go that really understands yeah. know, what it, what is happening here. Um, so thanks for that background. That really, really helps a lot. Linda, I want to um, ask you because I know you had um, a hand in creating your new your new unit for residents with dementia called the Harry's Haven. So tell us more about you know, why you felt the need um, to even develop a, a dementia uh, neighborhood or community or unit, whatever, everyone calls it different things out there, and, and, and how you wanted to serve them differently. Well, Harry's Haven has its origins in the early uh, 1990s and uh, was actually started by Kirk Douglas, um, gave us the real motivation and the funds to get something started. He had recognized the need from within his own circle of friends and, and, and people that he worked with, the need to support families that were supporting someone with dementia, that there needed to be some place and some way to give people um, a better quality of life and be able to keep a family as a family. Um, and so that's where we started our original Harry's Haven. It was started in a building that today is close to 60 years old. Um, it was just, it was a building that had been used for other purposes on the on campus. And so that's where we originally put Harry's Haven. Um, very institutional looking in terms of long straight hallways um, that kind of dead ended at, at an outside door, which was secured so somebody couldn't exit. But within there, we really tried, we really focused on creating um, programs and stimulation and joy and moments of, you know, wonder and discovery through um, different, different programs and techniques that we would hear about. We really tried, we really kept up on what was happening in the dementia care community. So we were working with things like aromatherapy and, and um, memory therapy and, and um, incorporating exercise and light and, and those kinds of things into what we were doing in this old building. And we kept, you know, and remodel and redecorate, but that was sort of it. So it was 30 people living in about 8,000 square feet. They all had a private room. Bathrooms were in the hallway, so they didn't have their own bathroom. Um, but that was, the, there were, I can remember, I have some wonderful memories about that unit. Um, you know, New Year's, New Year's mornings and the staff and the residents would all have pajama parties and watch the Rose Parade and drink hot cocoa um, 
looking, you know, watching that on, on the television, things like that. But anyway, fast forward for us, we had, because our, our Mary Pickford house used to be quite, um, quite a bit larger, we had um, downsized a bit to be able to, sit, to be, remain sustainable and be able to keep the organization um, what it is. And that had happened uh, almost uh, 11 years ago. So we had this space that was on the second floor above Mary Pickford House. And it's uh, tw- just under 23,000 square feet. And it was designed as part of the skilled nursing. So there are um, 22 bed, 24 private rooms, sorry. And then there's also eight rooms that are two, um, two bedrooms. Um, quite a large space, very bright and airy. And it was just sitting there and we kept trying to look at our old Harry's and how do we keep reinvigorating this? And the need is so great and we only have 30 beds and what do we do? And suddenly it was like the light bulb came on and why don't we move them? And so that's what we started looking at doing and exploring and like, how do we take all this programming we were working with and experimenting with and put it into this new environment and yet make it even better. So we we were able to increase our census to 40. So by increasing from 30 to 40, about a 30% increase, we also went from 8,000 square feet to just under 23,000 square feet. So we went almost three times the size. So people had so much more elbow room and this, this new unit really, um, took off. So it's, it's totally different in design. It's really, we've really looked at literature and what's worked in other communities. Our, our CEO went to the dementia village in the Netherlands and, and was able to see that. And we were really in touch with um, leaders uh, in this country, kind of looking at, you know, what's being done around the country that's been successful in dementia care. And so part of it, we were just really fortunate that the architecture or design of this second floor unit is actually like an oval track. And the rooms are all on the outside of the oval. So every room's bright and airy. They don't open up directly into a hallway. They open up into a little sitting area. So four rooms, uh, three or four rooms will open up into their own little sitting area. And then that just separated by like a little pony wall. And then that, then you can see the rest of the space. So by having an oval, somebody can walk around and wander around this, this large space and not hit a dead end and not hit that frustration of there's nothing to do but turn around and go back the direction you just came. Um, building on that, we wanted to create a reason for somebody to move around the space. And so we, we created these, these little um, like uh, memory vignettes or memory stations and there's five of them, and they define our five neighborhoods because we were borrowing from the, the greenhouse philosophy and the philosophy from, um, there's a place in, I think it's in Wisconsin, and I'm trying, uh, um, it's, it's Mother House or Mother House uh, Memory Care that they, they ha- also had used neighborhoods and such as we were looking at all these different models. And so we have five neighborhoods in this large space. So that gives a person a sense not only to be able to explore, but also know where home is. They know where their room is and what neighborhood they live in. Um, the five areas are a uh, uh, little market where there's actual food, produce, et cetera, that they're able to just take um, as they want to. Um, where they have a office with a typewriter and a filing system, et cetera. So somebody just goes by there and feels like they want to sit down and do some work. They can do that. Um, there's a workbench 
um, which has PVC pipes, uh, wood things to work with, things to, to screw and unscrew. It's just something that somebody's going by and feels like they, they are compelled to work or want to work with their hands, it's there. Um, there's a bus stop, and then there's a laundry room. Um, so that there's, there's things, there's socks to be sorted, there's towels to be folded. Again, it's just all just kind of sitting there. We always have a load of towels in the dryer. So if somebody walks by and just sees, oh, those, you know, I, I'm going to do this, that's what they do. So we tried, we made an environment that unlike the old Harry's, we, we didn't have to bring somebody to an uh, activity to stimulate them or engage them. We wanted to create an environment that in addition to all our scheduled planned programming, the environment itself could just, you know, it'd be spontaneous. It would be something, you know, yeah, somebody could just go by and engage with these with these different sets and these different um, scenarios, however they wanted to, and that was something that that we thought would make it. Life is about being spontaneous, and we thought that's what would give more opportunity for our residents. So, that's in a in a very large nutshell. <laughs> I love I, you said so many things in there, um, and I I love that you explored and really you know went around the world to see what's what's going on out there. Um, when you had mentioned one of your favorite moments is in the morning with the staff, with the PJs, you know, New Year's Day and things like that, it reminded me of the butterfly model. And I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but that is like nothing I've ever seen. And, um, and I haven't actually physically seen it. I've just seen this beautiful video about it where staff, you know, um, they wear their pajamas at nighttime because it's a reality orientation. We're wondering why people don't want to go to sleep. Well, they don't think it's time to go to bed because there's people walking around like it's time to be up. Yeah. And so they, they really work on things on a whole different level when it comes to training and things. They don't, they don't do the typical training that we do here. And again, it would be difficult to do, but they do um, like a vulnerability training. And so they get everybody in a room and say, okay, you tell us your worst fear that you of of anything you want anyone to know. This is what these people feel like when they're when they're moved in. You know, they don't know who you are. They feel extremely vulnerable, and and so they do this. It's just a whole different level of getting people to understand vulnerability and being scared and not trusting or the world not making sense. And, you know, they don't take staff breaks anymore because staff don't want them. They're just part of the family and everything. Um, I can send you a, a link to the video. It's, it's just absolutely marvelous the way they have broken all the barriers. And um, some of the younger staff talk about it. I feel like these are, you know, this truly is my family. This is my extended family. They're like my grandparents to me, you know, and how mm -hmm. I'd want to treat them. And they eat their meals together and um, you know, if somebody wants to go out, they go out, you know, just like you would at home. And so um, it's, it's a pretty, pretty cool model. So I thought I'd mention that. Um, I love all the, the memory stations. I think those are so powerful. And I like, especially for the men that you worked in something that's safe, because a lot of times people are thinking power tools, and all of those things. And they, like, well, not so much. <laughs> you know, um, uh, one question I wanted to ask, it was, um, do you guys have like a, a snoozeling room or do you even know what that is? Um, a a snoozeling room is really a, a sensory room. 
yeah. and and they're real big and I know some people will have bits and pieces and others have actually set up um, separate rooms just for that have you looked into that or have that yeah I mean we had that has come up in conversation with our planning um, currently in Harry's Haven we do have some nice rooms i don't know if it's the true definition of this the sigilly room but we have a small room that has this beautiful aquarium um and it's kind of a darker room so the soothing um view of the aquarium with the beautiful fish in it um kind of the bubbling water is an area where we'll put um, some of our residents who we know would benefit from some you know downtime um just listening to some soothing sounds and then within um sort of the U-shape, we have um, living room type areas with a fireplace, it's obviously electric, <laughs> um, with some music and some couches. Again, kind of an area where people can come, chill out, visit with one another, and uh, we have our resident birds. Uh, we have some birds in both living room areas, so people can sit next to the birds, listen to them, and then um, you know be amongst their friends with the fireplace. So those are some of the areas that we have um, kind of in that idea, but not exactly like that. And my guess would be that you have like a theater room, given your motion picture. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, for that. And, you know, when it comes to snoozling rooms, I mean, you can go all out or just add pieces here or there. I mean, I've had people um, say, you know, what can we do to improve? And, and they'll have this beautiful scenery and that'll be real quaint and, and maybe it'll be kind of cabin, you know, nature, naturey. And I'm like, you know, you've got room to add a picnic table in here for people to sit. And you put some music on with some nature in the background, or you could even um, put in like a fake window that has a nature scene behind it. I mean, there's, there's, it's endless. And then you add aromatherapy on top of it. And it's really cool how all that stuff can can take off and and really make a difference. I love the space that you have for everybody. That's got to be wonderful um, for people not to feel so confined and and trapped because that you know makes people feel anxious. You know, period. Um, with that, so thank you for sharing that. That is that's a really exciting what you guys have done, and I and I love that um, Kirk Douglas. You know was one who really saw that need and said, you know, let's do something about this. Let's, let's help people uh, because it, it, it is, it is such a need and, and everybody has the power to make a difference in this. I'm a true believer. Right. I don't care who you are, um, what your status is. Um, we all have that power of one to make the world a better place. We just have to speak up and we have to walk or talk you know, with that. And, uh, and that's very important. Um, let's talk um, next to Jessica, I'm going to point this one to you about how you serve people with dementia in the community uh, mm -hmm. at large. Yes. So um, we have a program called Elder Connection. It's not a dating service, even though everybody's like, <laughs> hey, that sounds like a dating service. <laughs> um, and we have five social workers who work in that uh, community-based program. And that program is divided by zip codes. And each of those uh, social workers you could kind of think of as uh, like a, a geriatric care management program. So they're assigned um, 
clients who live in the community based upon zip code, and it can either be industry members themselves or parents of industry members. And I would say the large majority of those clients either um, have Alzheimer's um, or have some, you know, mild to severe cognitive impairment. And so what those social workers are able to do pre-COVID is um, go out to the home. So oftentimes we'll get a phone call from an adult child or a family member and they'll say, you know, I was just visiting mom and I'm really concerned because she's not acting herself. Or I've noticed that um, she's not able to manage the checkbook anymore or is getting confused when she goes to the grocery store. And so our social workers will go out to the home and meet with the client themselves and hopefully a family member. Um, and we're able to provide comprehensive assessments in the home just to kind of get a lay of the land as to what is actually going on. Um, and then from there, we, are, we have our hands in many community resources and can link those clients to resources within their community. You know, if it's the Alzheimer's Association or if it's an adult, adult day program, or if it's really a situation where living at home um, is no longer feasible, then we'll help the family make that transition to a facility that will meet the needs of their, um, their loved ones. So that might be here, or it might be a place um, closer to a child um, because it's important for that child to be um, near their parent to take care of them. Um, another great service that we have is here on the Motion Picture Campus is an outpatient medical clinic called AgeWell. Um, and we have two uh, geriatric practitioners. And oftentimes we'll bring those community clients in from the community where we really wanna learn more about what's actually happening here. And so those clients will come in and we'll go through um, an assessment called a cog um, comprehensive geriatric assessment where they will meet with a social worker who will do um, you know, the, the memory screenings, the comprehensive psychosocial, and then they'll meet with the geriatrician who will then do the medical piece. And at the end of the visit, which usually takes about four hours because we also have a physical therapy and occupational therapy component to that, the family and the client will walk away with kind of a care plan, for lack of a better word, with, you know, what does the doctor and social worker see going on for them now? What are some things they can do post-visit to follow up on those concerns? And then how can we address these concerns going forward with them living in the community? Um, so, you know, I think um, the, some of the other things we've been able to do for community members is we've had some um, evidence-based uh, classes that we've held both here on campus in our satellite office in Burbank, um, powerful tools for caregiver program, a memory training program, and, you know, so we're always really trying to stay um, on the cusp of what do our clients in the community need and how can we address those both on an individual level and then, you know, kind of more on a global level through the classes and such. So that's what we're doing uh, currently with our community clients who are living with dementia. Okay. I've got a couple of questions for you. One, a lot of people don't know what a geriatric manager is. So if you can just define sure. that, uh, that term, because a lot of people just don't have a clue. 
Yeah, so a geriatric manager is somebody who comes in and kind of looks at the person holistically. So, you know, a, a client has been referred to me, I'll go out into the home and I'll look at them holistically. I'll look at their home environment. Is it safe for them? I'll look at their physical needs. Um, I will look at their medical needs and then we'll look at their financial needs. And you're kind of looking at the person as a whole person and, and, and where are things kind of falling through the cracks and how as a manager, if you think of the word manager, how can I help them manage this? How can I help guide them, this, either this person or this family, to services that are going to shore up some of these holes um, or, or things that they're struggling in their life. And then, and then we follow them. So we don't just come in, you know, give them X, Y, and Z, but we'll come in, we'll kind of, we'll give our recommendations of where we see they might need help and listen to them in terms of where they need help and then help walk hand in hand with them this journey um, to a point hopefully where they feel, where they feel safer and more contained. Um, and we just really kind of manage them and their life as much as they'll let us <laughs> um, to, to a place where, um, you know, they feel a little bit safer and um, where life's a little bit more manageable. Does that yep. answer? Oh, no, that makes sense. And do you do that just with uh, members of the entertainment um, community or is it open to anybody? So yeah, we, we, all, we do it for members of the entertainment community and we do it for parents of people um, in the entertainment community. We do have an eligibility process and I'm not gonna bore you with all the details of that, um, but to get certain services, they um, need to have worked in the industry a certain number of years. Um, and to live on campus, they would have had to have worked in the industry 20 years. That's kind of the, the magic number. Um, in terms of eligibility. But to answer your question, yes, it's industry members and parents of industry members that we provide the uh, geriatric care management program to. So are there um, like fees or a sliding scale for services or is it just? No, it's part of the charity. Wow. Um, it's, yeah, it's, yes, I know. It's pretty amazing, really. It's very um, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's very amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible actually yeah so there's no fees um or, or attached to the service you know one of the programs that linda runs is is the palliative care program and oftentimes elder connection and palliative care will partner together um in terms of managing somebody both through their um you know if it's dementia and then you know their health situation and palliative mm -hmm. care that service through motion picture um, also is, is part of the charity, but Linda can speak more to that because that's her baby. Wow. Well, why don't, why don't we roll over to that right now? That's a, I'd love to hear more about that. Well, okay. So palliative care you know, is the, it's the care support and, um, uh, focus on quality of life and symptom management for somebody dealing with a serious illness. And it doesn't have to be terminal. They don't have to have a prognosis of less than six months. It can be somebody who's going through a really like a serious cancer treatment for which their prognosis is expected to be pretty good once they come out the other side of it. But in the meantime, they're having to do a bunch of treatments or it can be something more chronic and progressive like dementia or like um, uh, lung disease or a heart disease that's really reaching a stage where it's impacting the life. 
it, um, it recognizes, again, that holistic thing. We're not just our diagnosis. You know, we have families we worry about. We have finances we worry about. We have, you know, all these other things that we worry about when a diagnosis kind of derails our life. And so palliative care is delivered as a team. It's that we treat the medical component, um, you know, whatever medically is going on with this person to make them as comfortable as they can to support whatever other treatments they're having. If they're um, going through chemotherapy or radiation therapy, then we're, we're coming along and partnering with that, with the oncologist to make sure the symptoms are being controlled while they're doing their treatment. In the case of dementia, we're working with the geriatrician or the neurologist or whoever is kind of treating the dementia itself. And then we're helping to support to make sure that um, the person, again, their quality of life is as good as it can be, that we're working with the social workers in that case, and then also the family, because the family needs so much support. So we have the medical piece. We also have a social worker in palliative care. We have a chaplain um, that's in palliative care. And just to, ma- and just to make sure that we're and nursing and we're to wrap this person in a layer of, of services. The, for MPTF, we're providing um, the, um, the nursing component. Um, a coordinator, a chaplain, and a social worker, and none of that comes at a charge. Um, The physician part of it is through their insurance, and so we don't collect anything for that. We partner with them very closely um, right now with UCLA um, and their palliative care certified physicians to be able to provide that piece, but we all work together as a team. So it's really looking at it. That's That's why our focus is on industry members, because this whole organization is supported by donations from industry members to support industry uh, entertainment industry members. So, you know, that's our mission that that's who we, that's who we serve. And then we don't charge for our services. Wow. That is just uh, so amazing that, that, uh, that you guys have pulled this together and it's sustainable. I mean, that's, I'd love to see more, more industries take a stand and get involved and, you know, because we're just, we're not doing a great job out there um, as a whole, in my opinion, from, from a healthcare standpoint, in terms of meeting the needs of so many families out there. And, right. and that is just so critically important. And it, and it takes, you know, it takes people to get, um, get creative and really listen to people. And, and really take in what is going on. And I, I know that's what motivated me to step out of. I was in residential real estate working with the senior market for 25 years. Never thought I'd leave it. And then it was actually the senior housing that said, you know, you got to tell your story. Um, you're, you've found joy. You know, you've found a way to, to live graciously alongside this. People, people need that. There's such great fear. And and, um, you know, I love talking with other people and, and being able to raise their voices and let people know this can be done. And it can be done in a lot of different creative ways. There's no right or wrong way, you know, to approach this. The, the, the only wrong way is to do nothing, mm-hmm. is to just let it continue. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, to me, that's, that's where things really, um, really can fall down. I, I think it's about consciously caring, you know, and, and getting that support to them in ways that matter. Mm-hmm. And so kudos to you guys. Um, I, I think there's also so much misunderstanding about palliative care and hospice. Mm-hmm. You know, we have such great fear of end of life. And, you know, it's really about smart living and people need to understand 
you know, you want support throughout your life. You know, we have this, this falsehood that we should all be independent and we shouldn't need any help. And, and yet, you know, who do we value most? Our family and our friends. That's not being apart. That's not being alone. That is being connected and being supported um, in other ways. And so we really have to help people reframe um, what support is. And, uh, you know, I have a one program I call that's called Family by Choice. You know, it's really about being one big extended family and, and both staff and family members need to understand how that works and what each other's roles are because there's so much misinterpretation out there in terms of expectations and what's really going on. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you guys even, even see that where families might, um, at first, maybe when somebody moves in, they're looking for trouble. They're looking for all the problems. Yeah. And, and, and so, and the staff is like running and hiding going, I can't talk to him again on this. They're just going to yell at me. And, and what people don't understand is why families do that. Yeah. And why staff reacts that way and vice versa. And, and being able to have those conversations and just say, until, until we build trust, it, you know, we're not going to have this raving fan or this great family by choice, you know, yeah. team working together. And, you know, we we're scared for our loved ones because it's a change. We're feeling guilty. You know, all of those things are going through our head. And so we've been taught that we have to fix things. And so you can't fix things if you don't identify them. So that better be my job. Yeah. It's to look for what's not working. And then, th and then that's all we focus on yeah. is, is what's not working. We're not focusing on the good things. So having communities and, and staff that understand it's important to not just call us when a med gets screwed up or somebody fell or something's missing, but to send us a picture of somebody smiling or a little video, someone giggling or a project or and there's so many different ways we have to connect that say, we understand, we care, and, and this is, you know, this is what we are, what our goal is, you know, is to, to get these true feelings. And, and I think so often, um, again, people get scared by words, palliative care, um, hospice, dementia care, I mean, any of it. And, you know, dementia is just another illness that we have to deal with, just like we've dealt with AIDS and cancer and heart disease and you know, it's about learning to be gracious and, and, and realizing that there is support and we shouldn't be pushing it away. It's mm -hmm. there for a reason. It's, it's been developed because there is a need and there shouldn't be any shame in that. You know, that's about um, really living as a, to me, a full engaged um, society and is a, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, I wanted to um, also ask you guys about COVID because COVID is like, you know, taking the bag and dumped it upside down in, <laughs> in, in, in everybody's life. If, if they never left their home to begin with or, or not, um, or if they were traveling around the world, um, you know, if they're living in community, uh, everything has changed. So I'm assuming for you guys, um, you've seen some effects with that as well. And I, my guess is you probably both have some some comments on how how COVID has has impacted your your community. And and Jessica, I'm going to go to you first on this one. 
um, just because I, I went to um, Linda last time regarding the palliative care. But mm -hmm. how, how has COVID, uh, you know, affected not only your, your residents, but your families and your staff as well? It's, uh, yeah, it's been um, a huge upheaval in the lives of everybody, both our staff, our families, our residents. And I'm gonna let Linda talk about, um, you know, COVID and, and the unit that we uh, had here on campus because we did have some <clears throat> positive COVID cases and, you know, the work that she did around that because really she was boots on the ground here taking care of those residents. but. You know, in terms of our larger community and our residential community, um, we have seen, you know, a bit of a, a decline in some of our residents um, who are kind of used to getting out and being social. Um, and, you know, family members definitely being worried about their loved ones. Um, you know, we're blessed to have a rich social service department. And so, um, you know, not only do we have nursing staff in our residential community, but we have social service staff. And so from the very get-go, we started reaching out telephonically to families, um, letting them know kind of what was happening here on campus, trying to address their concerns, connecting them with their loved ones here on campus, either through the phone or through um, an iPad, doing FaceTime, um, doing regular updates about what was happening on campus as it related to COVID. We have our own internal television, um, it's called Channel 22. It's run by a woman named Jen Clymer and, and our residents. And Jen, um, to, to answer the, the question of COVID, the way that she wanted to engage our residents and keep them active is she started a program called Organized Chaos. And so for a couple days a week, she would be on the television having residents call in and start to interact with them on the TV, but also on the phone and had different guest speakers come in and she continues to do that today. Um, both Linda and I have been on channel 22 just to talk about things that are happening across campus. Um, we've done um, programming um, on Zoom with the residents, um, different game shows, uh, social workers are checking in with them um, daily to make sure that their care needs um, are being addressed from an emotional uh, level. Um, and then in the community, kind of the same thing, trying telephonically to reach out to people, make sure they feel supported, connecting them with either online or telephonic uh, services that can keep them engaged and decrease, you know, that, that uh, self-isolation self and loneliness. We have a great program called the Daily Call Sheet, which is a telephone reassurance program where we match volunteers with, um, people in the community that might want a phone call every day just to chat. I mean, that is as basic as that. Um, so we have our volunteers calling industry members in the community and just having telephone chats with them. And like I said, it could be daily, it could be weekly, whatever the, the person feels like they need. Um, and then we're doing support groups. So our social workers um, are having Zoom support groups for the families of industry members. Um, that live here on campus. Um, Anne Front, who's the palliative care social worker, continues her support group via Zoom um, for the caregivers. And then we've um, attempted 
haven't been so successful yet as doing a support group for the residents. That's a little bit technology related rather than um, lack of interest. So we're continuing to, to try and get that off the ground. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that the self-isolation, the loneliness, those are the, some of the things that we're really seeing people struggle with and just, you know, every day trying to think of new ways to reach both our clients and make sure our residents' needs are getting addressed. And I think overall, we've done a beautiful job um, with that. Wonderful. Linda, why don't we talk a little bit more about Terry's Haven and some of the experience you've had with COVID there? Yeah, yeah. so it, Harry's Haven, clearly the programming has had to change because we can't bring people together like in a larger group activity, et cetera. The staff is still wearing PPE, so it's been since mid-March since the residents have really seen the lower half of the staff's face. Um, but they're, they're certainly, they're, they're they're recognizing us by our voices and by you know, our mannerisms and things. So we're able to keep some familiarity though. It was, it was disorienting in the beginning. And as we put people, we, we closed the campus March 9th in, in anticipation of the build of COVID in the Los Angeles area. Um, and knowing that that was happening, we just shut down visitation. We put the staff in masks. Um, we, you know, tried to keep this an island of safety. And March 30th is when we found out that we actually had COVID on campus and it was in um, Mary Pickford house. But over the next two weeks, both Harry's Haven and Mary Pickford um, had cases. We ended up with 17 total. Um, it's been 14 plus weeks since we've had a, a new case. So we're on wood. Got a lid on it, knock on wood, all that. Um, but during that time, for the month of April and into May, we had, again, it's a large campus, and, it's a, and it's, we've been around for so many years. There's nooks and crannies that used to have a purpose, and then that purpose went away, and they just could have stood because we couldn't figure out what to do with them. We used to have a little medical surgical hospital um, on campus, and we were able to take that and turn that very quickly into our COVID isolation unit so that when someone did come up positive during that two-week intense period in April, we were able to move them away from everybody else and put them into this isolation unit where they had a dedicated nursing staff, et cetera. That had its own challenges because we had some of our people, they are like from Harry's Haven, they weren't particularly symptomatic. They couldn't be out with everybody else because they, they did have active COVID, but they were also feeling well enough that they wanted to get up and walk around and wander around and walk out to see what the nurses were doing. And so you can't just take somebody like that and say, well, go sit in your room because that's, that's not going to work. It's just, and it's not good for them. And so we had to get really creative. How do we engage these people that really need to stay away from everybody, but be able to get them out, like to get outside and get some fresh air and go for a walk with somebody who's heavily garbed in PPE and, and, you know, and be able to do those things and, and be able to make their days just not one monotonous thing after another. There had to be those moments of joy in the day. We did all facilitated a lot of FaceTime visits with their families. So, you know, we'd get people outside in the fresh air and then they could sit there with the iPad and somebody helping them and talk to their family members. And that helped um, upstairs on Harry's. Um, again, things had shut, had shut down and we haven't really been able to open up fully like we would like to, to be able to get our, some of our services back in like urban Zen, which was a combination of Reiki and aromatherapy and a one-to-one -one session with guided breathing. And that was a really successful program, but we haven't been able to bring that back yet because we're still, um, 
being super cautious about who comes on campus and, and how many people we let on campus. Um, but we are, thankfully, because we, were, we had moved Harry's just a few months before, we're able to utilize the space that we have to bring small group, like two or three people together with somebody, or let people move a little bit around and, and, engage, with, and engage with the environment. So that's helped a lot. Um, massive testing. We, we, were, we struggled in the very beginning of April to get access to testing supplies, much like everybody else in the country. Um, and finally have used uh, some of the donations that, that have been made specifically to us for this purpose um, to get some on-campus testing equipment that we're able to now get results in, in really um, real time. And we're doing a lot of surveillance testing to make sure like all the residents on campus gets tested monthly. All the staff that has direct contact with those residents we're testing twice monthly. Um, we're just really trying to keep this you know, okay, we've been through the storm. J-Wing, which was our little hospital unit, is closed. It has no customers right now, um, and we're hoping to keep it that way. Um, but anyway, it's it's been a disruption just like it has for everywhere else, and we're just kind of feeling our way through it and trying to connect families with each other, you know, the, those that live on campus with those that don't, as best as we can. Yeah, we've had, uh, you know, I've talked with communities all around, well, all, actually all around the world, but you know, some in memory care have literally even taken all their furnishings out of common areas. So if somebody does oh. wander, they can't sit. But that's got to be awfully frightening, too, yeah. because then what's happening and are we moving and, you know, what's, what's I mean, that, that's just got to, you know, not be a good thing either. It, it's hard. And then there's others that have smaller wings and they're still getting together in their smaller groups, you know, of, of maybe 10 to 14 people in a wing and doing activities. And they've, they've been good about not, not having spread either. So, I mean, there's just so many different ways to approach this. And, you know, it's nice that you guys have your own TV channel because I know some people are bringing in like exercise programs or you could even do the breathing program, I suppose, you know, on there and, and try different things. Um, but again, it's it's plugging everybody in and, you know, trying to get families comfortable too if they're not allowed to visit and having those connections. I've got one gentleman in a um, one of my memory cafes and he's pretty techie. So he bought an iPad for his wife's room and they have it set up there and he can bop in on her at any time. It doesn't ring, it doesn't ding. So it's nothing that's going to scare her. He can observe her or he can call out and talk to her and see if she'll engage. Um, but it's not, it, you know, it, it isn't staff heavy in terms of needing and them needing to do anything other than just set it up once. And mm -hmm. that that has worked really, really well. And he just appreciates being able to peek in and see that she's okay, even if she can't talk. And it's a real gift when she does choose to have a conversation you know, with him and, and things. So there's, there's, you know, we're learning so much about relationships and how to engage in different alternatives and, and things. Um, you know, we've seen the ones where they have the, the hug walls, you know, with the arms that go through and things like that. That has to be hard to clean those things up. <laughs> <laughs> our response. Yeah, yeah. We, we talked about that here. We were like, mm, we're not so sure about that one, but nice idea. Not sure yeah. how it's clean. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's just it's kind of kind of endless out there. Um, well, I'm glad that you know you've got the COVID under control because I you know we all hear on the news how it's spiking out there again in California. And, but again, I would imagine hopefully more people have respect for it since you've been through this now you know a couple of times. And um, I know in Minnesota, it seems like people are getting a little bit more lax, you know, and we're, we're hanging tight there, but you know, it, it just feels like it's a matter of time if, if people don't really take this thing seriously and, and, uh, and monitor how they're interacting with people and, and um, the whole PPE thing. Uh, how are you? I have talked with a lot of people that are really scared that if it hits again, there's going to be a shortage once again in terms of, of PPE. Um, and I just read an article today saying some people have ordered, um, have ordered PPE and it says that it's federally approved, but it's fraudulent and it's not the quality. And it's just like, oh, criminals, come on, put your mind to good use. <laughs> Stop scamming <Yeah>. everybody. <laughs> no. Um, but is that is that a worry for you guys out there? Well, it's always a concern. Um, we do track our burn rate for PPE. How many are we going through now? We we were tracking how many we were going, what we were going through in terms of gowns and masks and gloves and goggles and all that when we had J Wing open um, and active cases. Uh, so we're, we have a good idea of what our burn rate, current burn rate would go up to if we had to reopen J-Wing again. Um, our purchasing department worked around the clock. I mean, they have since this all started, um, constantly going back and trying to find sources of quality, you know, PPE that we can use. So right now we're in, you know, again, knock on wood that nothing dramatically changes. Um, we've got, I think we're about three weeks ahead in our supplies and constantly exploring and renewing that. So we're able to at least say, okay, if something happened tomorrow, we're not going to be caught with nothing to use. And we'll have a few weeks to get, you know, make sure that we have, are able to amp up our supply. Um, but that's taken a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of exploring all kinds of, um, Clues. So, you know, we have a lot of very helpful folks that would call in and say, oh, my cousin lives here and they know so-and-so and they'll get you something. And, you know, that's just how you have to run down every lead and it turns out the cousin didn't know so-and-so and there is nothing to be gotten. But um, we, we got through that. Yeah, I have a couple of friends who are on um, kind of like sewing bees and they've been sewing gowns and stuff for different communities. Uh, one's in Minnesota, another one's in Colorado. And you know, they're getting the the right material, same with masks. And I was visiting one of my friends here in Minnesota. And I mean, they had a room and they just had bins full of stuff. Just like, we don't need it right now, but we don't know if we're going to be able to get it. And, you know, and so um, my one friend, she used to do placement for like 55 of their communities. And she's like, I'm just running around to Michael's and Joanne Fabrics. You know, grabbing stuff and then getting getting the uh, the supplies out to people. But you know, they're looking at different ways because they don't know what to they don't know what to expect. You know, with everything. Um, I I can't thank you guys enough for taking the time today. But I, I I do have one last question, and that is, what are what's the future for the motion picture and television fund? What's uh, you guys, I'm sure, have some things on the list that you're 
you're dreaming about implementing and um and jessica i'll, I'll go to you first on that and then uh, linda will go to you yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the community, our elder connection program, you know, we're only going to see an increasing need for um, care managers to be out in the community working with clients and families and educating. And, you know, so my hope for the future is that we continue to expand that um, here for um, our industry members, you know, not just in California, but across the country, we are able to to work with people, again, it's kind of telephonically that live in New York, but to be able to offer them support and a connection, um, not just to help, but to, to their industry. And so I just hope we can continue to expand that and get the word out that we are here um, and able to, to help. And then, you know, I think on campus, um, expanding, growing larger in terms of our ability to house people um, who have dementia in an appropriate setting um, where their care needs are being taken care of, not just physically, but emotionally and um, for, their, for their activities and their interests. And I know that there's, there's future planning to, to build um, here on campus, kind of a, a new community, more state of the art than we currently have, um, where we can increase our census and, and bring more people in who need that level of care. Yeah, there's some really neat communities out there that have really done a lot with technology. I have a friend over in Australia and they have sensors throughout their whole building. Mm -hmm. And so they can see where somebody is just by the floor sensors. Um, they don't have to worry about them getting on an elevator and going to the wrong floor because their pendant that they'll wear or their, or their wristband won't allow that. It just won't open for them. Wow. And, um, and they have, they've done some really cool stuff for, I mean, even just getting supplies into a room instead of being invasive and just walking in, they have a, a two-way cabinet. So they, they can put them in there and then only one person when they go in to visit, instead of all these people in and out, will just undo the supplies and unpack them. I mean, wow. some really simple wow. things, um, lights that are under, um, sensor lights that are under um, like a nightstand. So when someone gets out of bed, it just goes on. Wow. Um, you know, magnet doors, so people don't necessarily know something opens. I, I, there's just, I, the list is just phenomenal of what is, what is out there and what can be done from safety and comfort. You know, it just, it, it really is so, so incredible or even just the little um, MP3 players that people are yep. using for personalized music yep. and uh, and things. And uh, again, you guys are doing a lot of neat stuff with the, the holistic approach, which I think is so, so important out there. Um, Linda, what do, what do you have to add about the future um, of the organization and what you'd like to see? Well, we turn 100, as Jessica said, next year, so we're looking to go another 100 beyond that and just keep meeting the needs of industry members. Um, I mean, one of the things that Mary Pickford, one of her, her big quotes to us um, when she was talking about founding this, this organization was, we see a need and we fill it. And that's really, I just see us continuing. So I can't, you know, whatever direction we go on is going to be in response to what we see the people that we serve need. Um, for myself and like palliative care, I think the one thing that came from COVID 
was that we made a transition into virtual visits that we had been tiptoeing around but weren't quite sure how to address. And so by doing that, we've been able to serve people who geographically haven't been able to get to us to actually meet face-to-face. And now we're having these relationships and these, these meetings and these um, office visits with them all virtually. And, and that's really been, that's been really helpful. It's also allowed us to partner with physicians that weren't within our immediate network, but are part of that person's care. So we're able to have our chaplain and social worker um, be a part of that, become a part of that team. Um, and so I see more of that happening, even when it does become safe eventually to go back into a doctor's office. Um, we've just been able, we've, we've been forced to grow, but it's been, a, it's been a, a fortunate growth because we hadn't quite figured out before how to serve these people that just couldn't get to us. Yeah, there was such a pushback on telehealth. And now, I mean, there's a cost savings. You have the whole germ thing, (laughs) you know. I mean, there's just so many levels to it. And for palliative and hospice, and and Linda, I I believe I shared this story with you. When my mom um, was actively dying, um, and actually before she started coming to me in dreams, and she had told me that I wasn't going to be there when she passed. And I'm like, but I'm the person. That's me. That's my role. I'm always there to help people transition. And she just said, no, I need you gone. I need, I need the others to experience the death process. So when my mom died, I actually was doing two keynotes out in Arizona. My, my family, other than my daughter, thought I was having a nervous breakdown because why would I leave? Didn't make any sense. But I knew that that was her wish. She wanted me to carry on my work. And she wanted them to be more involved. And so I was thinking that I would just partake by phone. And my daughter said, well, how about if we FaceTime? And so we FaceTimed. And this was like, oh, she died in, in uh, six years ago. And so here I am down in baggage claim waiting for my, <laughs> for my luggage. And I'm FaceTiming with my mom. And at the time, my daughter's saying, I think this is it. Do you want to say goodbye again? And so... Um, that just started a whole new scenario in terms of communication. She didn't pass away um, at that time. And I was able to talk with her and be part of the family experience. They're all packed in the room. And, you know, I have one brother that um, needs to be put in his place every now and then, and no one would do it. And I could, I could do that by video. And then they mm-hmm. broke out laughing and every, the, the tension was cut and, you know, I could guide them on how to care for her without physically doing it by, you know, getting if it was cool washcloths or swabs or ice chips or whatever. Um, I was able to participate in um, the last rites. I was able to see wow. her take her last breath. I mean, I, I didn't miss a beat, even though I was traveling and I firmly believe she had a plan for everybody I met was just like the perfect person my whole trip it was incredible but I I never envisioned that even being possible and I questioned how much I'd really get out of the phone calls but I knew this was my mother's wish and I was going to hold on to it and I you know I am such a huge advocate of you know, these teleconferences and and people, you know, people used to poo-poo support groups too, you know, on on Facebook, people would, you know, chat in um, back and forth and message and post and, 
people would say, you, you know, those aren't real friendships. Those are deep friendships because they're talking about real things that actually mean something, not the weather, not sports, not politics, you know, but, but stuff that is really meaningful in their everyday life. And, you know, we can't under appreciate and underutilize those things when they're, they're right, they're right at our hands. Um, you know, our relationships are so deep and there's just so many different ways to communicate. And, you know, like with a zoom, I mean, people can, can go ahead and record those and have those after, you know, even if someone passes or maybe they get healthier, but it's a, it's a reminder, you know, that we have those. I have some music therapy ones of my mom that I can have the worst day of my life. And I go watch a three minute video of my mom in her end stages, joyful, um, singing, what she can falling asleep but hands are flapping and toes are wiggling and she's smiling and giggling and that can make my worst day a great day you know so we we need to tap into new things we have to not be afraid of change and you know one of my favorite questions that i ask myself um on a much more serious basis due to all of my dealings with dementia is what's the lesson there is a lesson in everything. And I loved the quote, when we see a need, we fill it. Because if we ask, a lot of times we're spinning as family members or staff in a scenario and we think we're looking for the answer, but we're really not. We're, <laughs> just, we're just swimming through the minutia. But when we stop, and sometimes we have to stop and even get angry. I've gone down in my basement when no one's home and screamed, what's the lesson? <laughs> you know? and, but it makes me centered and really focused on what's important. Mm -hmm. And I always find the answers. I mean, they just come. And because I wasn't truly looking, I, I wasn't open enough, open-minded enough, you know, because I thought I knew how it should be, what the answer should be. And a lot of times we don't know what these answers are. You know, and so we have to be open to trying them and and seeing what's there. I'm I'm excited for you guys. I can't imagine the celebration you'll have for your hundredth year. How 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 fun is that going to be? And to see um, the different ways you come up to to support one another. Um, if there's a way I can ever help you, just you know, please reach out. I would I would love to to be of assistance in any fashion. Um, now, people listening may want to get a hold of you. And so what is the best way to, to contact you? You've got a website. Mm -hmm. um, and so, Jessica, do you want to give us that website? <clears throat> sure. It's www.mptf.com. And then... Um, for anybody listening who might be an industry member themselves, we also have a phone number to call our intake line, which is area code 323-634-3866. So that's 323-634-3866. And just know that that actually is a message line. So you'll leave your name and contact information and any questions uh, you might have about services, and a social worker will call you back. Wonderful. 
And then if they are interested in emailing you, Jessica, is that, uh, can they go ahead and do that? Of course. Um, so my email is Jessica, J-E-S-S-I-C-A dot C-A-U-G-H-E-Y at M-P-T-F dot com. Wonderful. And then Linda, is it okay to give out an email for you as well? Absolutely. It's Linda, L-I-N-D-A dot Healy, H-E-A-L-Y at M-P-T-F, Mary Paul Tom Frank dot com. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you ladies so much for for being with us. Um, in wrapping up, I just want to remind people you can always go to alzheimerspeaks.com two S's in the middle there and one at the end uh, for more information and um, resources regarding projects and initiatives that we have. And um, in the future, look for a new program that I'm launching called Conscious Caring Support. It's going to be specializing in transforming um, caring transitions for family members and those with dementia. Uh, I think it's really important to assist people. I, I've heard more and more people wanting support. And so it will be kind of a combination of a, a mentoring coach program, as well as some group programming that we can do as well uh, to connect people and, and really evaluate where they're at and, and how they can, how, how they can work through this. How can they live graciously alongside dementia? and not look at it as a travesty, um, but really find the gifts that are wrapped in there. And there are many, I, you know, I bear witness to that. I lived with it for 30 years and I still say to this day, my mom's disease is the biggest gift I'll ever receive. Wouldn't wish it on anybody. But <laughs> there are some really great life lessons to be learned and, um, you know, wonderful people that you will meet along this, along this uh, journey. So, Again, thank you everyone so much for your support of Alzheimer's Speaks and Linda and Jessica and to the Motion Picture and Television Fund. Thank you so much for what you're doing. It's absolutely phenomenal. And I wish you nothing but the best. Thank, thank you. you, Lori. Thank you for having us. Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel. Straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525.